Yeah. Uh, our topic today is evil um, and our deliverance from it, which only God can give. And we're going to focus on prayer in, in terms of that, that we are, uh, as Paul instructs, prayer for himself in our passage and also with the same, very similar wording by our Lord teaching us to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Uh, <clears throat> and I liken this to milk um, in the... Well, bad milk. <laughs> uh, evil in our world is like bad milk. Uh, it's infected, and there's no way to get it out. If your milk's gone bad, what do you do? You do something to you heat it up, uh, you add some stuff to it. Uh, I did a little research on this, uh, and very little, and, and discovered uh, that in the 1800s, throughout, it wasn't until 1930 that we started really pasteurizing milk as a rule in America, 1930s. There was a lot of milk being drank throughout or drunk throughout the world in America or throughout the world as well. And it was uh, very easily that milk would contain uh, pathogenic microorganisms that would induce enteritis. I had to look that up. It's uh, inflammation of the small intestine. And actually, it's really dangerous, and it's dangerous for little children. It was one of the main causes of child mortality in that age, which child mortality is was at somewhere around 50% in the uh, early, earlier 1800s, 1700s. Uh, and around 1870, it was around 30%. So three out of every ten children died before the age of five. You imagine. Uh, <clears throat> when dairy producers saw that their milk was threatening to go bad, someone found out that if you added a few drops of formaldehyde to milk, it will it would stop the process of and, and the formaldehyde killed the microorganisms, which isn't so bad. It's better than drinking bad milk. However, when the dairy producers found out that they could they could preserve milk with formaldehyde, they started putting more formaldehyde in, and then people started getting sick for different reasons. And in fact, there was a case in some orphanage where three kids died from formaldehyde poisoning that came from their milk. When that became public, well, you know, the formaldehyde thing had to go. Um, so you got to heat your milk to 120 to 140 degrees. That's pasteurization, thanks to Louis Pasteur, who actually worked on wine, was doing that for wine, not so much for milk when he discovered that. And uh, for us, you know, if you're the stuff in your the stuff you eat goes bad, milk, cheese, meat, whatever, there's nothing you can do about it, and you throw it out. And our world is like this. Our world is sick with a microorganism, and that is sin. The effects of sin, like a swollen small intestine, is evil. That's what the, uh, the Bible calls it. The term evil is the effects, the pain and the destruction that sin causes. That is evil. And so in thinking of dairy... I wanted to make a plug for this guy. If, if you don't know him from Oregon, this guy's at Tillamook, and we love the Tillamook uh, Cheese Factory here, especially their ice cream. Their ice cream is amazing. 
But uh, uh, Derek there uh, has a farm in Tillamook, and he's very popular online. You can follow him. He has a bunch of those brown Jersey dairy cows that you see all up there. Anyway, uh, that's a plug for him. If you want to follow him on Facebook or whatever, he does an awesome job. He, he's really uh, entertaining, actually. Big dairy farm up there. So, And his milk doesn't go bad. Let me go back here. Okay. Let's open up in prayer. We're going to start in uh, Ecclesiastes, actually. Find Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and then we'll begin with prayer. Let's be, again, thankful that God provides his word and that he provides for us these, these wonderful things, uh, one of which is prayer, one of the many great blessings that we have as believers and that, uh, but first we're going to discern how crazy God's world is. And he has allowed it to be this way. And uh, we've got to deal with it. So as we pray, let's ask God for insight and wisdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We know that it gives us wisdom. We know that through you and you alone, by your scripture, can we know the truth. And so we ask for discernment, we ask for knowledge and wisdom that today would come through the passages that we'll see and read. We ask, Father, that through your Spirit our eyes would be enlightened and that we would use this wisdom to glorify our Lord in our lives. As we pray, Father, and hopefully we all pray this daily, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So our theme today is that God has given us the privilege and opportunity to give input into his decree for history, which is a means by which when we petition him in prayer, uh, we're not focusing in this passage on uh, being thankful for prayer to God in prayer. uh, And just, you know, there's many ways that we can use prayer in terms of thanking him, communicating with him, just being with him. Uh, but this is the petition part of prayer in which we're asking God specifically concerning people's ministries, concerning people's work in their own walk with the Lord, and for our own as well. There's a lot of evil out there that are that is ready to infect us, like bacteria in anything. It's looking to infect our souls. Uh, <clears throat> the effect of all that sin is pain and destruction. There's a lot of sin in the world. People are committing it. The source are people, their decisions, their lack of faith, as Paul states in our passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that it is a lack of faith that caused people to be perverse or unfitting into their calling or what God has designed them to be. And uh, their, their evil, which is the pain and destruction and... Um, all the trouble that people cause, that falls under the category of evil. Um, <clears throat> so how do we not let it affect our souls? And how can we help others uh, not let it affect their souls? And there's way, there's several ways to do this. I mean, studying God's word is, is a, an incredibly effective way to not let evil infect my soul. Uh, to... Uh, also to meditate on what I understand, to apply God's word to the situations of my life. That is incredibly effective in allowing evil not to infiltrate my soul or to um, 
infect it, uh, but also prayer. And this sometimes I think is overlooked, that prayer is a means by which I have an, an input into protecting myself and others when it comes to evil infiltrating. And when evil infiltrates my life, my ministry, which is my witness of Christ to the world, is completely hindered. And uh, prayer is a key part to this. So the fact that the world is full of sin and we never know what's going to happen, hardly, there's no control over it. How's it going to affect? You don't even know in your own heart how your your own, you know, what's what's tomorrow going to look like in terms of your own temptation to sin? Like, is it going to be one of those days where it feels like you are so incredibly spiritual and walking so well in tune and in harmony with God? Or is it going to be one of those days where you're struggling and and your mind just wants sins badly or wants something badly that's not of God? How do we know what's coming? And why do those days happen that are so, in a way, perverse? You know, we're, we're bothered and tempted more so sometimes than others. Why does that occur? Well, this gets to the heart of prayer, actually, because nothing is predictable by us. Is it going to go easy? Is it going to be hard? And I, if I do really well spiritually, I mean, I study my Bible and I hear God's word and I pray and I serve, are things going to go well for me or are things going to be really hard? And none of us know. And so prayer is a means by which we input uh, our own desire and wants into God's decree, as long as they're according to his will. So in a world where there is absolutely no guarantee of income, I'm sorry, (laughs) that's true too. There's no guarantee of outcome. There's income and outcome, but there's no guarantee of outcome. God asks for our input that we may participate in whatever result he wills. And as I said yesterday, God is completely smart enough to include your petition into his will. If you don't pray, he's going to do his will anyway. But when you ask, you ask according to his will, he's going to include that. And it's not for us to know when or how or what. we're, We're getting too involved there. We're like children, trust our Father. So he tells us to pray daily. We're to be in constant communication with him, knowing full well that we depend on him completely. Therefore, we're not to be as smart as him. We're not to know what he's doing all the time. It's, don't bother yourself with such big things. Why would you bother? We're too dang stupid for that. We need to just put it in his hands and enjoy our communication with him. And certainly input for yourself and for others. Yesterday we talked about input for others. Today we talk a little more about input for ourselves. But before we do that, we have to realize, as God puts it through his servant Solomon, who we're pretty sure is the writer of Ecclesiastes, has stated to us that we have no idea what's going to happen in this world. And so we're not to know that. So look at Ecclesiastes 3.1. 
Ecclesiastes 3.1 has the, um, this famous poem, and it's become famous, especially in the West, because of, um, it's after Proverbs, right? The, uh, it's become especially famous in the West because of the birds. Uh, you know, the, the singing group, <laughs> not the fowl. Uh, that's, that could be taken a different way. But anyway, here we go. Look, there is an appointed time for everything. There is a time for every event under the sun. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. And I left it there in my notes. But you can read the rest. Because the actual time to kill, time to heal, time to tear down, time to build up. The actual you know, thing that's being done and its opposite, right? It's, a, it's an event and its opposite. Weeper, weeping and laughter, mourning and dancing. Those particulars are not near as important as that we have opposites. And because what, what has happened in this poem is because it's become so popular, and, and rightly so, is that, you know, there's a certain, the theme that most people take from this is that there's, you know, there's a time for this and a time for that. And, you know, that's the way, it, and it's nice. You know, it's a nice thing. You know, here's a baby being born, so it's a time to be born. And here's a guy getting old and dying, and so, all right, it's a time to die. And we see that both, we see the good in both. And we say there's a time for this and a time for that, and okay, we move on. But what's missing here is the frustration factor. Now, why do I say that? Because of the context of the book of Ecclesiastes. And, in fact, the context of this chapter is that we have in the writer, Koholith is who he is. He's the preacher. We think it's Solomon. And, and what's, what's missing in our evaluation of this poem is this is nice and that is nice and this is nice, and that's nice, is that there's no frustration in that interpretation. Because in this man, there's incredible frustration. And the frustration comes out in the fact that he doesn't know what's going to happen. And that's what's really here. There are times for each thing, and there is also a time for its opposite. And only God knows when the one or the other are going to occur. So think of this now. And think of this in an agricultural economy of the past. As in our modern culture, we have a lot more uh, protection. It's a good thing. Um, you had, say you live in 18, you live in America in 1870-something, 75, let's say. And you live on a farm somewhere. And you, ex you have eight children, and three of them die. And your neighbor in the farm over, yonder, you would probably say back then, they have ten kids, and none of them die. And then the family over there have five kids, and four of them die. In 1900, pneumonia, influenza, tuberculosis, and that enteritis, which I've mentioned from milk, were the three leading causes of death in the United States, and children under five accounted for 40% of all deaths from those infections. 
That's according to the CDC. The infant mortality rate in 1870 was 32%. So you have 10 kids, you got to expect three of them are not going to make it past five years old. Imagine the heartache in people. I don't know how you get used to that. And then, because of, well, I'd say because of many factors. One of the factors that, as I was researching it, was pasteurization of milk, actually. Saved millions of lives. Uh, in 1885, that mortality rate started to decline rapidly. And right now in the United States, infant mortality rates are seven deaths out of every 1,000 births, which is 0.7%. It went from 32% to 07 None of us in our modern age can identify with the fact that so many of our kids are going to die and there's nothing we can do about it. Imagine your frustration. Now take that and apply it to there's a time to give birth and a time to die. I expected that child to live and he died. I expected that child to die and he lived. Wouldn't you be frustrated? And Koholith the writer of the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is extremely frustrated because he can't figure it out. He's the smartest man alive, as Solomon's blessed with wisdom, and he can't understand it. He can't figure it out. Now, look, there's a very famous passage that comes after this in verse 11. In New American Standard, it says he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And so this passage has been taken in a way that most people would interpret this, which I have done in the past, as, well, there's a God-sized hole in everybody's heart, and only God can fulfill it. And everybody knows this, right? Everybody knows that there's a need, their own need for God. And I don't disagree with that. However, I don't think that this that that is what this passage is saying. You know, what did Solomon mean by this? Well, in the uh, context of the poem we just read, eternity, first off, let's look at the word eternity, is the Hebrew word alam, and it means perpetuity as well as eternity. And perpetuity would mean that I understand, and mankind is the only one who can understand this. I mean, the animals don't. Your cat isn't sitting around thinking about, remember last year it was so much better here than it was this year. right? I remember when you used to buy me the good cat food, and now you buy me the cheap stuff. They're not sitting around thinking about that stuff. But we are. The human race is infected <laughs> with a sense of time. We know the past, we know the present, and we have expectations of the future. And that's what olam also means. This word is used over four times in the Old Testament. So it's got a, it's got a wide range of meaning. If God has set eternity in our hearts, well, that's, that's fine, but in the context of this you expected death, you got birth. You expected birth, you got death. Uh, what else do we have? There's a time to tear down and a time to build up. Right? You expected this business that you created to really run. You did everything right, and it fell apart. 
doesn't make any sense. And a knucklehead over here does hardly nothing, and his business takes off because of whatever. He's got some hook that people love or something. Yeah, I, I could do everything right, and everything that I plan falls apart. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is getting at. And here, in this case, he would be saying, God has set in my heart the very real understanding of the past and the present and the future. I know what's happened in the past. I look at what's happening now, and what in the world is going to happen in the future? Is it going to be more of the past? Or is it going to be like the present? Is it going to be like the past? Or is it going to be nothing like it? I could do everything right. And it could turn out horrible. And it truly points to our friend Job as well. Who did do everything right and his whole life fell apart. We could see him writing this poem. There's a time to build up and a time to tear down. Because Satan tore everything down in his life. So, and this comes from Vine's Expository Dictionary. I put it in the notes, but he agrees with this interpretation. He says, quote, thus in Ecclesiastes 3.11, we read that God has bound man to time and given him the capacity to live above time, which is, for example, knowing to remember yesterday, plan for tomorrow, and consider abstract principles. The ability, and this is what this says, is that God has given us the ability to consider the abstract. What will happen? What is God doing? Why is he doing it? And you see in prayer, which Solomon's not going to really talk about in Ecclesiastes, his, this book is about something else, about presenting to us the fact that life is fleeting, unsound, deceptive, and, and everybody agrees with this. We as believers agree with this. It's only eternal life that's not fleeting. But life here on earth, have you figured it out? Have you controlled anything? Have you been able to predict anything? Has it all turned out the way that you expected? Doesn't it seem short? Like when you were a kid, it seemed like forever. You, when you were a kid, you looked at a 57-year-old and you went, wow, man, on your way, way down the bottom of the hill, right? Now I'm 57 and I'm... I don't feel like that, but I know it's coming close. You get 60, 70, 80, what in the world? It was like a, a flash. What is it with time? Right? Why does it seem sometimes so short and other times so stinking long? And it's because God has set this perpetuity in our hearts, in our hearts. But we can't figure out. Notice what he says. We can't find out the work that God has done. And God is the one who has taken time and put all the pieces together. He has decreed it exactly according to his plans. And I don't know what those plans are. And I, I'm stuck in the midst of it. As Vine says in his dictionary, we remember yesterday, plan for tomorrow, we consider abstract principles. Yet he, God, has not given us divine knowledge. Now, we have knowledge of the Bible, but we don't know from the knowledge of the Bible what God has given us in the Bible, what in the world is going to happen tomorrow. Do you? Do I? I say, I, 
I look at it, I know the Lord's coming back. Yeah, but when? He is coming back. But when is he coming back? None of us know. So Paul was received. So think if Paul goes from place to place in his ministry, in some places he's received, and in some places he is, as we saw in um, Lystra, it was he was stoned to death. Um, and what was the difference? What made the difference? And not that he would know. So look at Ecclesiastes three sixteen. So all in this context of chapter 3, the writer says, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man for for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. One thing that is for sure is that God is going to judge the righteous man. But what he says here in verse 16 is the fact that he observes that things don't make sense. What doesn't make sense is that in the place of justice, there's wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there's wickedness. What happens, we'll see coming up in chapter 8, the righteous person often ends up with stuff happening in his life that, is, that wicked people deserve. And Solomon here has observed it all, and he's scratching his head, he's scratching his head and saying, how in the world does this make any sense? And in fact, it doesn't. Which is why, in prayer, we ask God for insight. We ask God for guidance. But most of all, because he's not going to really tell us why. For instance, as I said, Job never found out why all that stuff happened to him. We could ask God why, and if he doesn't reveal it, what are we also asking God? To give us peace, to trust him. Give us the ability to trust you. Because really, sometimes things in my life are quite bizarre. And I don't understand why they've happened like this. And if, you're, if you, have, you have found the path of righteousness and you're walking it, and you see as you're walking, things, some things are better and some things are worse or some things have worked out well and other things have not and you have no clue why. It's because God, has, God is doing things that we can't possibly know or comprehend and he's going to keep doing them and we're not going to figure it out. And so go to chapter 1, verse 2, the very first line. And this is what Ecclesiastes is known for. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. There's his name, Kahalath. I don't know how to pronounce it yet, but I'll I'll figure that out soon. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, In some translations, it's meaningless. These are all translations of the same word, which is hevel. The same Hebrew word, hevel. And Hevel is actually the name of Abel, of Cain and Abel. This is actually his name. And Hevel, although it can mean meaningless, but when we look at this, it's almost like this way nobody wants to really read Ecclesiastes or study it is because right away you read the first line and you're like, well, if everything's meaningless, what do I care about this book? 
I mean, this person who's writing it obviously doesn't see anything that's worthy of any value because he says everything's meaningless. So what's the point of actually reading it? But in fact, when we look at this word a little more closely, and what we do is we look at how it's used throughout the rest of the Bible in other contexts. And it actually it can mean fleeting. So why is Abel's name Hevel? Is he meaningless? Not at all. But his life was short. He was murdered by his brother. His life was shortened by a murderer. And so this word actually turns out to mean fleeting or futility is another way that it's translated. We'll see that coming up. Uh, and also uh, vapor, like something is vaporous. Now, what does that mean? A vaporous means, well, it looks like something there, and then you look a little closer, and it's not what you expected. You thought it was a solid thing, and it's not. You thought it was a sure bet, solid, and it kind of blew away. The other meaning of this word is fleeting. Life, now take it that way. What if, what if your translation said, fleeting of fleeting, all is fleeting? I'd say, well, eh, that actually makes a lot more sense. And that's actually what the word means. We could also input here, vapor of vapor, all is vapor. But it doesn't just, it doesn't sound right. <laughs> Uh, the word also means to quickly change, like a vapor changes. You know, it has one look and then it moves and has another look. Quickly changing of quickly changing, all is quickly changing? It doesn't sound good, but it gets to the more of the point of what the word means. Solomon's not saying that everything's meaningless. Solomon's saying that life is fleeting and changing and it's not always what it looks like. And that's the truth. And yet, in spite of that, we have an almighty God who never changes, and he's in control of it. And we shake our heads at God, being, what are you doing? It doesn't look like you have much control down here. And he tells us that he absolutely does. So we're perplexed. What is going on? And none of us really know. And yet, then God says, pray to me. Pray that you'll be delivered. Pray you know, that, that others in their work as my servants are going to be delivered. And how he's going to deliver, up to him. When he's going to deliver, up to him. How it's going to turn out, I don't know. But what I do know is that he told me that he will do what I ask. He says it. Jesus said it really clearly. Ask the Father in my name and he'll do what you ask. Oh, he's, well, it sounds like we're bossing God around. But, you know, if you don't understand prayer, stop for a second and realize you don't understand a lot. Because why is life in the earth like this? Why is it feeding? Why is it changing? Why is it like a vapor? Why are some people dying young? Why in some era? Uh, you know, like, for instance, my, my first wife died of AIDS 
1995, we were looking at the, you don't really read too much about HIV and AIDS anymore. And the reason being is because the drugs have gotten so good that people don't die of it at, at an early age, like Sharon did. If those drugs were around in 95, she'd probably still be alive. And she would have been able to raise her child. And, you know, <laughs> and then the child wouldn't have been all screwed up by me trying to do it on my own. Um, but, you know, you look at God and you're like, what? Sharon never did any drugs. She didn't use uh, intravenous needles. She didn't use... She, uh, she wasn't, she was a godly, moral person. And she ended up getting AIDS. What? Why? Who knows why? None of us know. God says, look, are you at peace with me? Forget about trying to figure out how the world works. Are you at peace with me? And that we can say, yeah. Hence prayer. Prayer is where you get to express that to him. That's why he said go into your inner closet and pray, right? Like get away from the noise and the craziness of a world that I'm letting go. Uh, you know, it's on a short leash, but I'm letting it go and be crazy and be fleeting and vaporous. And I'm letting it do that. I'm in control. But go out of it when you talk to me and pray to me. And another thing, I, and I, I meant to pull this out. Maybe I will uh, tomorrow. I forgot. But I was uh, reading Screwtape Letters. If you know, that's um, C.S. Lewis's allegory on a man who is tempted by the devil and demons. And uh, one of the conversations that is in between these demons that is in that book, is, and this is from C.S. Lewis, this is not from God, but that, the, um, the demon said, we've tricked mankind into thinking that the position that they're in when they pray is not, doesn't have any meaning. In other words, they don't pray on their knees anymore. And the demons were saying, like, this was a victory for us. And the point that was being made is that when you're on your knees, you're in a submissive position. And your position in your body does actually affect your mind and how you present yourself to God. Which is the reason why either you know people raised their hands. It was a, a means of submission. That's how the Jews prayed. But they prayed standing up. And they closed their eyes. You know, it's a means of submission. And I only say that, and I know for some of us, getting on your knees would be the worst thing you could do. Because all you could think about instead of God would be the pain running through your back or your knees or your legs. I get that. But after I read this, I started praying on my knees. I need a really good pillow to do it. <laughs> I cannot stay there very long. But I've, I've found a position where I can stay there for a length of time. And I tell you what, it actually does make a difference for me personally. So I would say if, you're, if your prayer life is struggling, it may be, this could be a help. I'm not saying it's going to fix it. But if your prayer life is struggling, I, su I would suggest find a position where you're more submissive, if that helps at all. Go to Ecclesiastes 8. That was a commercial for being on your knees. Again, I, would, I must remind that the Bible never says, doesn't give us a command to pray in a certain condition, position. 
A condition, yes, but position, no. Ecclesiastes 8.14, <clears throat> there is futility. Now, here's this word hevel again. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, so when you see futility there, that's this word that means fleeting or vapor or quickly changing. Uh, soundless could be another translation. It's a broad word. There's a futility which is done in the earth. That is, there, is a righteous, there are righteous men to whom, it, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is hevel, fleeting, unsound, or futile. It doesn't mean meaningless. It's just that Solomon here is saying, I have done the, I have watched, I have taken notes, I have seen this. That righteous, to righteous men, wicked things happen. To wicked men, righteous things happen. And I don't, no one can know or figure it out. So nobody notices his conclusion in verse 15. So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God have given him under the sun. So, wait, what? So you can't figure everything out, so eat, drink, and be merry. That's what he says. You say, well, this is Solomon. He's just, you know, crazy. He's not crazy. This is not throw all caution to the wind. Not at all. You have to read the rest of the book to see that. But he's not saying that. He's not saying just forget about everything and get drunk. He's not saying that. What he's saying is enjoy what you have. Tomorrow you may have more. Tomorrow you may have none. But enjoy what you have now. Notice the word toil. You're still going to toil throughout the days of your life. But you should enjoy what you have now. And now from our perspective, those who walk with God, who desire to walk with God, we can enjoy many things. We get our eyes on the suffering or the problems that are happening to others or to us. You know, that Satan is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He, he gets us from time to time. We could be concentrating on the temptations that we have to sin or maybe we've fallen into them and we're you know, because of our understanding of time, we have in our memories all the failures that we have. And they pop up. In my mind, they pop up. The stupid things I've done and said in the past. And here I am, a man who says that he loves God and, and represents God. And if you had a video montage of all the dumb things I did in the past... <laughs> It would be hilarious in some parts, but it would be sad. Just completely sad. But I'm not alone there. So many different outcomes. To the righteous, bad things happen. To the wicked, good things happen. I expected death. I got life. I expected life. I got death. I expected building up. It got torn down. Vice versa. On and on. 
God has set this knowledge of time in my heart, yet I can't understand what He has done and is doing. And then God tells us, pray for others. Pray for yourself that you'll be delivered from the evil one. Pray for others that they'll be delivered from the evil one. Paul said, pray for me. He gave it as a command. Pray for me that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did with you, and that we would be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord will... The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So that's Second Thessalonians 3, 1 through 3. And notice how much that looks like Matthew 6, 13. This is the sixth petition in the Lord's Prayer, the last one. So you can turn there, go to Matthew 6, 13. Or, yeah, actually, 634. It's all on the same page, I'm sure. Um, Paul said, Pray for us that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did with you, and that would be rescued from perverse and evil men. When Paul says, Pray for us that we'll be rescued, that is the exact same verb that the Lord uses here that's deliver. And. Deliver us from the evil one. And then Paul says, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And that's the same word that is evil here. Now, what we can't tell for sure, this is an aside, we'll just do this quickly, is that whether it's evil, in in, uh, Matthew 6.13 he says, deliver us from evil. It's the same word that's used in 2 Thessalonians, this happens multiple times in the New Testament, that we have this word that is either masculine or neuter. And uh, if you don't know what those are, and I get it, for years I didn't either. The point is, we can't really tell if he's talking about a person or a thing. Neuter would be a thing. Uh, Masculine would be a person. And Satan is the masculine. So, he could mean here, deliver us from evil things, or he could mean deliver us from the evil one. And for us, it doesn't really matter all that much. I mean, it should be said, but it doesn't really matter all that much because the evil one is the one who is instigating all the evil in this world. Now, first, we have to understand what evil is. Evil is that which is destructive and injurious to the human mind and body. And that's, a, that's an excellent definition of it. And it's broad, but evil is a broad thing. Anything that is destructive or injurious to the human mind and body. So like Alzheimer's could be classified as evil. If you had a loved one who's gone through it, you would call it that. Cancer, evil. Yeah, but is cancer a moral evil? You know, there's that debate. What we're talking about really in essence that we can be delivered from and that God, we want God to deliver us from is the definitely the moral evil. And this is a result of sin. 
uh, it causes painful, malignant, sorrowful labor. That's another way it's used multiple places throughout the scripture that sin, now don't separate sin from evil. They're, they're one in the same, except more evil, sin is the input and evil is the output, if you will. But they depend upon one another. The, what, what sin does is cause me to toil and labor in painful, malignant, meaning out of the norm, perverse if you will, and sorrowfully. It causes me to toil. And it's used of people. Uh, there's an evil spirit. And the evil spirit is often uh, used of, you know, even evil in our society. And we've got a lot. Of, it's, it's always been around. But look, look, you look at our society now. There's a lot of leftism that has taken hold. Uh, but it could be anything. It could be socialism. It could be like in Jesus' day, the legalism was an evil that infected the Jewish society. It could be licentiousness, which is just moral uh, immorality. It could be sexual immorality. And when people allow it into their souls, this evil now is a, it's a result of sin that remains in the soul and has its effect. So in other words, you know, a Christian could sin in a certain way and understand how wrong it is and how evil it can be and confess and repent of that and get back on the straight and narrow, whereas what can happen to a believer and will happen to every unbeliever is that they allow that sin to remain and build upon it and build upon it and build upon it, and now they have a system of thinking in their head that now has an effect of pain and destruction on themselves. And now evil exists in your soul. This can happen to a believer. So evil ruins lives, obviously. The spirit of evil can be in a society, as I said, or it can be in a person. Uh, You could be in an evil society or society that has a spirit of evil and not be infected by it. And, uh, you know, that's a God tells us to not be infected by that which is around us. <clears throat> so, only God can deliver from temptation to evil. In 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. Right? God knows. And that's why we're praying for it. For others. Paul prayed. Pray that we're delivered from evil men. For us, we're told to pray, deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, we're deliver is a command. And like all these petitions, they are all six of them commands, which are strong requests of God that we are delivered from the evil one. In that, you pray for yourself. So, the Lord, 2 Peter 2.9 again, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. 
And this, it's always going to be around because it's always around us. Look at Matthew 6.34. Matthew 6.34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Now, when you see the word care, it's the exact same verb in the Greek as worry. So where he says don't worry, tomorrow will worry for itself. Now, it doesn't seem like a day tomorrow should worry, so they change it. You know, the translators changed it, change it, but it's the same word. Uh, so, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry for itself. The fact that he uses the same word twice should be given in the English because he's, he's using that as a rhetorical device to get us to hear, you know, hear the similarity Today has worry. What will tomorrow have? Worry. Today has anxiety. Now, not that you're anxious or worried, but it's here. It's all around us. It's tempting us, always. <laughs> Aren't you always tempted to be anxious or fearful or worried? We always are. Now, that's why none of the, the, the news, no news media ever made a living out of uh, printing good news, not one. There's not been a, you know, a news media somewhere in the history of mankind that has said, you know what, we're just we're not going to print the negative stuff. We're only going to print positive stuff. It would have never survived because nobody wants to hear it. Everybody wants to hear the bad stuff. That's why they survived like that. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for or be anxious for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now that word trouble is the word evil. Now here it's translated trouble, but it's kakaya or kakia, and kakia means evil in most other instances. Now that uh, graphic I made <laughs> didn't come out the way I wanted it to, but uh, I know. It, it, I meant it to be like a fog or something that's always all around us. It looks like someone having gas on the other side of a door. Uh, anyway, that could be evil as well. The uh, you know. So what I have, you know, what I'm trying to depict here is that it's all around you. He says, and and this is the the literal translation here on the side. Sufficient to the day is its evil. Meaning, every day has enough evil in it. It's, the word he uses is sufficient. Sufficient to that day is the evil that exists in it. In other words, it's everywhere, it's always here, and it's all around us. And we can let it affect us, or we can be delivered from it. We saw yesterday in Acts 13 and 14, every place Paul went, there were evil people trying to stop him. Why do they even care? You know, here's one guy with a few people with him. He's got maybe a half a dozen people with him. They go to a synagogue. The population of Jews in those areas are small. 1% of the population, maybe. And he's going to the synagogue. And he's preaching. And so what? Why do they care? But yet they do. Because there's an evil in this world, and evil truly is that which, go back to the definition of it, and you see, where is it? 
Where is it? There's Derek. Hi, Derek. Is that it? No. Where did I put evil? That's Hevel. All right, I lost it. Okay. Didn't I put it up? And, and now it's bothering me. That's not it. Weird. Okay. But evil is... Oh, there it is. You mean the slide with the big evil on it that I couldn't find? That which is destructive to the mind and the body of man. And why is it destructive? Why is anything destructive to us? You know, why aren't the nihilists right? Why wasn't Nietzsche right? That it, it didn't matter what you did. There was really no moral code over all of us. As long as you just did for yourself what made you happy, then you're fine. There is no moral law. But yet, even he himself, who went insane in the end of his life, <laughs> he discovered the hard way that, yes, there is. There's a moral law. Why is there such a thing? It's because mankind is made in the image of God. And in the image of God, we have things. If they're from God, they're good for us. Mind and body. Don't, don't leave the body out here. Mind and body, the things that are good for us, and there are things that are terribly bad for us. And there's no gray area. God never gives us this, eh, this doesn't matter, like purgatory or something, you know. No, there's no such thing. There's no such place. It's either good for you or it's not. And there's nothing in between. And that's because we're made in the image of God. So, don't look at sin and evil as two different things. Sin is the act. Evil is the pain that the destruction, pain and destruction that sin causes. My illustration of someone touching a hot stove. If you burn yourself, it's because you were stupid. If you do it again, you're even stupider. And yet we are. How many of us have returned to the same sin and said, well, it'll be different this time? They're not separate. You wouldn't be burned without the hot stove. You wouldn't be burned without your decision to touch it. The effect of the pain is the result of the decision. They're not separate things. They are infinitely connected. Now, Jesus came into this world to die for our sins, correct? And now that we're forgiven of them, Paul says, should we go back to them? Now that you've been released by grace, should you sin more? Should it increase? Why not? You're forgiven. But I'm getting off my topic. Do not, verse 13, in the Lord's Prayer we have in these last three petitions, give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I would put evil one there. And, you know, so what, what, are, we, what are we asking for? For provision every day? Give us today our daily bread. That's not just bread, but all provision. Mind, body, and soul. Give us today the Word of God, even. It includes all of that. 
Forgive us our, our debts. This is our debt to God because of sin. We're looking for forgiveness, not because we're not forgiven by Christ. We are but because we need forgiveness every day. We need to experience that forgiveness because we're sinners. And as we forgive others, we will be forgiven. Now, we're not talking about judicial forgiveness here. You're forgiven of all sin. But when it comes to the experience of being freed from sin, if you won't forgive others, you are not going to experience that freedom. This this, fifth petition is really about freedom from sin in life and experience. And if you refuse to forgive others, you are not going to experience that freedom. Forgiven judicially? Yeah. But the experience of freedom from the sins that you commit, they will linger upon your soul, the effect of them. And then the last one, lead us not into temptation. It's very hard for us to determine... This is, again, it's another mysterious thing. Why would God lead us into temptation? But it doesn't say here, just because it says don't lead us, we we pray don't lead us in. It's really our expression of we want God to lead us in the right way. That's really what the expression is to me. When you pray this, you're saying every day, Lord, I want to follow you not into the place of temptation where I can easily fall, but I want to follow you into wherever you want me to go. And to pray this for others as well. Pray it for yourself and pray it for others. As Paul said in the first letter to Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. Day in and day out. These prayers tell us that, look, we're dependent upon God for everything, for our provision, for our forgiveness, and for the fact that we don't want to walk down the path that's going to lead us into something dangerous, which is evil. The, the, the existence of sin repeated and lingering in our hearts without confession, without repentance, and they cause pain and destruction to our very own souls, and they cause us to cause pain and destruction in other people's lives. And we're asking God in this last position, petition Lead us in a path that doesn't go down that path. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your gift of prayer. And thank you for the opportunity and privilege. We always get as we look into your word, we're hearing right from you. The words that you have written for us, the letters that you have written for us, so that we will see with you, despite the fact that we're in these fleshly bodies that have a sin nature, that desire the sin and evil of this world. But you have put yourself inside of us, given us the power to overcome the body and to use the body, actually, to glorify you. May we take this lesson, these two lessons that we've just heard, and may we each of us be convicted to pray more more so, more often, to pray properly to you for ourselves and for others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.